0: Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy, and I'm thrilled to be sitting here with the legendary rock and roll photographer, Bob Gruen. Bob, welcome into the back room. Well, thanks for having me. And we're actually... In the back room. This isn't some Zoom thing happening no, here. No, this is the real in back room. Yeah. The back room. So uh, we don't get many people in here. I think the last person that came in here was a many was our, people would fit in here. Pat Ryan. So <laughs> yeah. that's true. We don't. Yeah, we don't have enough oxygen in here either. So, uh, which you might find uh, twenty minutes into the interview. Um, right. It is a true honor to have you here. Uh, I am a rock and roll, classic rock freak, and so reading your book. Um, it was just riveting to me. Every page, there was a story about everybody I love, <laughs> and, I, and I want to get into uh, a lot of that, that with you. Sense. Um, before we sort of peel back the the layers a bit, uh, I wanted to just start in a macro sense. Um, not everyone in this world is called a legend, right? <laughs> And uh, not everybody likes talking about themselves being a legend. But I want to ask you, because, uh, you, your book is called, uh, Right Place, Right Time, hmm the life of a rock and roll photographer. But you you have risen so far above the pack. You're in your seventh decade or eight, True. Seven, no, I'm 77 I mean, now. Well, I mean, if we count the bar mitzvah years, like uh, maybe yeah. eight decades. But There have been millions of photographers in those 60, 70 years taking music photos. But there's something that uh, when when you pick up a camera, right, and you look through that lens and you hit the shutter, you know, magic has happened. And so I want to know. I don't know if it's magic. Yeah, it's <laughs> magic. It's magic. The, uh, and uh, I, put how that magic? It. That? <laughs> I put a lot of thought behind it. What's no, that? I put a lot of thought behind it. Oh, of course. It's not right. just magic. Well, no, no. the The, um, the end product is yeah. magical in the sense um, of not that it wasn't well thought out and and uh, you went through a process, but it's the process that I really want to understand. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the title of your book is right, right place, place, right, right time. time. And it's... in your book, you talk about getting a different angle, but. There's something more, obviously. Like, mm. what is it, from your perspective, that when you're in a room with a subject, what happens? Well, that... I
1: try to capture the feelings of what's going on and not just the facts. Um, I once had a, a I had one class in photography, and the instructor asked us to catch the feeling of a person, but not the person. Mm-hmm. And I said, "You mean like a car with you know uh, with the door open?" And he said, yes, if the radio's on and the engine's running. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I said, you mean like a a couch with a cigarette in the ashtray next to it? He said, yes, if the couch is warm. So I've always tried to capture that extra, Mm -hmm. you know, unseen feelings in the photo. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, when they see my photos, say that they they get that feeling and they almost feel like they were there. Um, You know, and and part of it is because I relate to the music. I mean, I work in music all the time and I relate to art musicians Mm -hmm. into the music and so i try to get that moment when everybody's screaming yay and nobody's thinking about paying the rent right you know that moment of freedom Mm -hmm. for me rock and roll is all about freedom basically the freedom to express your feelings very loudly in public Mm -hmm. and that's what i try to bring across in my photos it's not just a fact of the guy was there with a red shirt tonight but what was he doing and was he saying something and can i capture that feeling in mm-hmm. my photos and you write in the book that you you
0: your style is to is to just let people pose naturally let them do things naturally Yeah, i don't it's do not a not lot like, of baby you know, baby give me more, baby, baby, give or, me more or, right. leg no i don't right. do that
1: at all i'm i'm a very i just have a casual conversation basically i wait them out i wait people out until they're comfortable and they feel relaxed and they look good mm-hmm. and then i take picture but and when you when the
0: when you say uh, right place at the right time, what I took away from your book and a lot of parts of the book is that y- you put
1: yourself. In yeah, a you, lot don't, of those you don't. You don't get to the right place at the right time by sitting home and watching television. Right. I think one of the keys of my career is I don't really like watching television. I get insulted by the commercials, and and I get bored watching television. So I go out and I find things going on. Yeah, well, like a and good when story. Get, when you get to the right place at the right time, you have to do the right thing. Right. Well, a good example yeah. of that
0: is when you talk about, uh, uh, I think it's the Rolling th- Dylan's Rolling Thunder tour, which mm. had like a no photographer's... Because they had their own. Well, that was one time
1: when I had to uh,
0: disobey the rules. But right, so you you put yourself Mm -hmm. in the right place at the right time. It was not easy. I had to
1: hide my cameras and literally tape film to my arms. Right. Uh, But my dad had told me that it was easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Right. (laughs) Especially when some nobody's giving permission. (laughs) Yeah. Later. Right. when I did eventually meet Bob Dylan and ask forgiveness, he was very angry and threatened to beat me up. Yeah, no, I want to talk uh, about uh, that because okay. you have it's a fascinating relationship I've had with, with him <laughs> with, with Bob Dylan. It's yeah, really he fascinating. Keeps coming up throughout my book, and it never <laughs> never gets good. <laughs> uh, I found it fascinating.
0: Um, uh-huh. You talk about like giving artists a ride home um, hmm. or taking photos of artists with their publicists. like hmm. So there, there, there's definitely a method to some of the madness well, of and making when you're hustling, sure. When
1: you're hustling for a job, uh, you've got to flatter the people in record companies. So if they hired me to take a picture of an artist, I would often try to get a picture of the publicist or the record company president or whoever I could with the artist, because then they would take that picture, put it on their wall, and remember me for the next several years right right no i saw that <laughs> um, and i was like "That's pretty." so smart. partly it's just being nice to somebody right. pay back for getting the job in the first place and the other thing is advertising so they'll remember to hire you next time right
0: so let's go i want to go back in time a little bit because i, I whenever i have a guest on i always try to no matter who they are i try to go back to the childhood because uh oftentimes when someone is doing something and, and is pretty prolific at it as an adult it's been a part of their childhood. They don't hmm. just automatically one day wake up and become a, a journalist at the age of thirty. Have like it's, you early have an interest. have an interest. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so you,
1: your, your mother was an amateur, right? My mom was an attorney, but her hobby was photography. One of her hobbies was photography, and uh, so she built her own darkroom to develop and print her own pictures. And when I was very little, like four or five years old, and I was two. Too big to go to sleep early, but too little to run around the house alone. She took me in the darkroom with her and literally put my hands on the film in the dark. And we developed film and counted seconds in the dark. And I think part of it was something that I shared with my mom. So, uh, you know, it was a, a thing that I really liked doing. And then I just loved the magic of photography. When you take a picture and you put it into this liquid and you have a blank piece of paper. Right. And you put it in the developer. And you just see a picture appear in front of you. I still can't understand it's, how that That's happens. the magic. I mean, that's the the process of photography, the physical process, is very magical that certain uh, chemicals, certain materials in, in the world will be sensitive to light and will turn dark when you mix them with another chemical. Um, it's all chemistry, but it's fascinating to watch, and especially when you take a picture You know, now you get to see a picture so quickly because it's digital, it's instantaneous, and you see right away what happened. Uh, Back then, you took a bunch of pictures, and you wouldn't know until you developed a film if you even got a picture, whether the film was exposed properly, whether you developed it properly. Then when you made a print, then you found out, was it in focus? Was it the right moment, or was somebody's eyes closed or something like that? You didn't know that until you see it appear in the developer. Right. And every once in a while... Like the first time I took a picture of Tina Turner, you see something develop in the, the you know, something appear in the developer and you go, Oh my god, that's good. <laughs> that's about really, like the five Tina you got everything right. Yeah, you know, that you, you see the picture develop and you go, like, Oh right, I got it all right. It's all perfect. And yeah, you know, there's a picture I took of Tina Turner while strobe lights were flashing and I opened the camera to a one second exposure just to see what would happen. And I got five images of Tina in the one picture. And I took five pictures like that. Four of them are useless because the images are all over the frame. And one of them, I just happened to move the camera the way Tina was moving. And I caught five images kind of in a line like Duchamp's nude descending the staircase. It's just not exactly clear, mm-hmm. but it's very clear that something very exciting is going mm-hmm. on. And Tina's in the middle of it. mm mm-hmm. um, so seeing things like that it come up in a developer, I remember that moment. It was like, wow, I got a good one. <laughs> and, you had your, and you got your uh, first camera at eight? Yes. Well, my mom, like I said, we got into the hobby of photography, and I took to it. And uh, she had some pretty nice cameras, so she got me my own Brownie Hawkeye when I was eight years old, and I became the family photographer. And that was kind of good practice for rock and roll bands because I had to learn how to get six dysfunctional people all looking good for a <laughs> 60th of a second, you know. <laughs> And that's what I did for the rest of my life. <laughs> you
0: know? Wow. And then at 13, you got like a better camera.
1: Yeah. For my Bermuda, I got my, my first 35-millimeter camera. It was still a simple one, a Kodak Pony 2, I think. Um, but I could focus it and I could set the exposure. I had a separate flash attachment. And I started using that. That's what my first pic, published pictures were taken with that camera. Yeah, the fire. The fire, um, that's the fire on the roof. I, I was coming home one day and there was a fire in a local neighborhood. And uh, I ran over and started taking pictures so fast that The fireman showed up and they put up a ladder and I have like a series of pictures of the fireman going up the ladder until he gets to the roof and turns on the water and I ran out of film. (laughs) And the fire is still raging and I ran home about a half a mile away, got more film, rode my bike back to the fire, at which point the front was all, a lot of fire engines were all over and I saw a big uh, building behind the fire and I went up on top of that and got a picture of the whole overview of, of everything going on. And it happened that our local newspaper on Long Island, the editor, it was, the local newspaper was the editor's hobby. He happened to be the photo editor for UPI, United Photo International. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked in the Daily News building in New York, and he liked me and he liked my pictures. And uh, he used the picture I took there on the front cover, and half of the caption is about me. Thirteen-year-old Bob Gruen took this picture from a building and got a great angle, and he's awesome in the story. photo business with his friend and. It was really kind of stunning to see um, me get rid of all my first publishing. Um, but I, I had early things. I, I worked in a print shop in junior high school, and we had a club, the Printer's Devils. Uh, and so I really learned a lot about printing that was helpful in knowing how to send pictures to a printer and how to make them look right when they got printed. Um and they had a trade magazine for all the schools print shops, and I did a cover story. The pictures on the cover and inside the magazine. I remember when I was sixteen, I was taking pictures of the local uh, politicians who were running for office, mm-hmm. and I went to the picnics because they had free oysters and drinks and stuff. And uh, the Republican and the Democrat, con- uh, 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 what do you call it? candidates for local sen for the state senate? Both of them had to the pick my picture on their poster. There you go. But bipartisanship. So very early 13. on, yeah. I, I I covered the waterfront. They, I work for they can use you in hop- in <laughs> Washington <laughs> right now. So uh, I mean, I went from the I continue to Turner to the New York Dolls. You know? uh-huh. I, I work for all kinds of people. <laughs>
0: yeah. And then you, you went to college. At 19, you dropped out. Uh, You said, quote, I wanted to take pictures, meet girls, and surround myself with interesting people and artists. Uh, I I say you accomplished that goal. Yeah,
1: my parents were really fixated on me going to college. They thought that I had to have a job, meaning a shirt and tie and an office like they did. Um, I didn't think that was really suited for me. Um, I tried a couple of colleges. It didn't really work. Uh, the last one was Baltimore Community College, which mm-hmm. I basically went to because if I was in college, my parents paid my rent. <laughs> and I found that one that would accept me. I got into huge fights with a sociology teacher who was actually friends with and Zanzinger that Bob Dylan castigates in a song. So I had huge arguments with this guy. One day he said, you used to be in Greenwich Village smoking pot with those hippies. And I thought he was right. <laughs> well, you mentioned your and parents. I left Baltimore. I came back to Greenwich Village, and I've been there ever since.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a part in the book where you talk about how, at some point, your parents got fed up when you, I think you and a buddy, were living on, like, 20-something street or 40-something Oh, we were street. on 46th Street. 46th street. And we and they, got arrested and they made for having an empty of Yeah. The... They made you
1: come home and go to work for Nabisco. Uh, well, they didn't make me go to Nabisco. I found a job because uh, I went to a photo, uh, uh, what do you call it, employment agency. And the guy was actually a photo employment agency, and he sent me for some. And I had to get a haircut just to go to the agency. My dad said, You got to get it. By the short way, haircut. you're talking about your hair. I want to yeah.
0: say, and I say this because there's three Jews sitting right here. Oh. <laughs> you should be a legend for that Jufro you
1: had. <laughs> I mean, that was an epic Jufro. Uh, it's anyway, funny, when I was to, growing up, you know, they didn't have out. curly hair. I had to comb my hair and use uh, barber's glue to keep it down. Uh, for some reason, this morning, I was thinking about the day a friend of mine who was a. Henry Vendell hairdresser and uh, he told me to jump in his leg wet my hair and he cut all this, I, had, I was straightening my hair uh, for about three years in the late 60s uh, just because it was so much easier to comb it and I had to comb it that was what people did and um, well, he told was, me to jump in the leg and cut off all the straightened part and I've had curly hair ever since and it's such a relief uh, to just be normal and natural uh, but they didn't do that when I was a kid so yeah. <laughs> and so the, 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 I want to sort of Throw
0: a few general questions at you before we go into the book and get into specific stories and experiences. Uh, like a lot of people, I guess, uh, hanging out in the '60s and '70s, you've you dabbled with uh, the the drugs and and are sober now. But I'd love the stories you tell about like the the Hell's Angels guy with the knife and Ike Turner with the coke. Like it sounds like you were in situations
1: where you. Like you had no choice. People made me offers that I couldn't refuse, (laughs) Uh, in a sense. Uh, With the Hells Angels, I was at a concert. The first time I met the Elephant's Memory, and they were playing a concert with Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley at a place called the Anderson Theater on the Lower East Side. And the Anderson Theater happens to be on a corner of 3rd Street where the Hells Angels live. Mm -hmm. And they don't like people coming into their neighborhood and doing things without them being involved. So they basically came to the theater and got involved. And... uh, so they sort of came into the auditorium and they took over everything until they were backstage. And it was, like, first it was two, then four, then eight, and it must've been about 50. And they just were surrounding this concert, came backstage, the elephants came off from the first set and came to the dressing room. I remember somebody lost their coat. Somebody had taken a leather jacket and, had, and the angel said, well, who's watching it? And there was some skinny road he was supposed to watch and the angel took that guy, threw him down the stairs and said, he can't do anything. We'll watch out for you now. And they said, here, have some of this. And they stick a knife into a mayonnaise jar full of methamphetamine, known as speed, Uh, pretty pure because they used to manufacture it. And then he holds the knife up to your nose, blade forward. Now, you can't really refuse that. (laughs) So you take a snort of this speed, and three days later, you're still awake, and you're telling this guy, this big bruiser at 3 o'clock in the morning, what you're third grade teacher said to you, you know, or other conversations you have when you're speeding out of your mind. Um, Yeah, it was a funny situation. (laughs) Yeah, And um, you and I, when I was reading your book, and I was telling Maddie
0: and Jen this, I kept finding things where you and I have like a, a, we've orbited around the same things. It's kind of, it just is unbelievable to me how much we haven't, Common and and certain people we have in common. Um, For example, uh, you mentioned the dolls. Mm. Uh, I worked with Phyllis Stein for decades, really, and know Mm. her really well. Um, I used to see Jerry come up. He would come up and visit her in our office. She was in marketing, (laughs) right? And I was in marketing for years. And I'm a drummer. And I Uh he gave me uh, one of the highlights of my life was when he gave me uh, when we found that I played drums. He he literally had sticks sticking out of his pocket. He goes, Uh "Here." So I still play
1: with his... Oh, his... really? Really? Then Jerry I was pic- the only professional musician who had any experience when the Dolls started. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he was the best one in the band. Yeah, oh, he's a hell of a drummer.
0: Um, and, and he was a really nice guy from the little mm. that I was exposed to him. Then I saw a picture of you with Jean-Luc Luc Ledoux. Oh, yeah. Who was my neighbor. In oh, really? Fry Becker. Literally, him and Sandra oh. lived on my floor. Oh, really? And I'm like, okay, this is starting to get a little kooky. And then- Yeah, John
1: Luke was a world-famous sommelier, a very good friend. Yeah. Uh, we had a great relationship because I could bring him backstage to meet people, and he would bring us to the best restaurants in New York, and he knew the sommelier and the chef and everybody. Yeah. Uh, we miss him terribly. Yeah,
0: no, he- was it like two, three He's years ago? Three, three years back, ago. Yeah. Um, you, you, Abington? You had an apartment there. My late wife, Adrian Shelley, who was a filmmaker, she was mm. she lived there and was I don't know if you know the story, but she was uh, murdered. Uh, oh my there God, in that in was your I knew the story. Yeah, but in the neighborhood. Yeah, that, that was my wife. That was home. Um, so when you start mentioning oh your apartment God. and you, the, what you're looking at in the park, and I'm like, Abington. Yeah. Um, Westbath is where I took my first drum lessons. Oh really? <laughs> I forget the I guy's still name. Live there, yeah. I don't know if he's still alive, but. Um, You mentioned you had a public access show. I had a public access show. Oh, really? When
1: cable first started, uh, and the cable TV, I don't know if they, they still must have it now, but it was part of the charter that the city, to allow the company to lay cable and have cable TV all over the city, they had to allow the residents, the citizens of the city, two channels that were just open to anybody, first come, first serve. And I had a very early t- videotape machine. It was a half-inch black and white reel-to-reel tape recorder. And I would take it to clubs like Kenny's Castaways or Max's and videotape bands, and then go to the public access. And I would sign up for a half-hour, an hour, like two times a week. So I had like mm-hmm. four segments. And it was really first come, first serve. We you went there. Yeah, and it was it, a crazy you know, place, wasn't it? But like- I could take hours, like two in the morning, because I was looking for people who were rock and roll people who'd right. be awake turning the channels in the right. middle of the night. You know. Um, and it was funny, I, I put on a lot of shows, everything from Blondie, uh, early New York Dolls, to uh, Willie Dixon, uh, Larry Coriel, mm-hmm. all kinds of people who played up at uh, Tramps in uh, Uptown. It was an amazing club. Mm. So I want to ask you about,
0: like, um, uh, in, in more of a quick fashion, I won't call it lightning round, but before we get into the weeds on a lot of this stuff, I want to ask you about... Th- the the experiences you've had, like for example, you know, is there a favorite
1: artist that you've shot? You know, well, I have several favorites. Like, lots of, it's like you know, a lot of them that I became friends with. Certainly, mm-hmm. John Lennon, uh, Joe Strummer, mm-hmm. uh, Debbie Harry, uh, lots of people. Uh, and what makes, a, you, and your what makes a in your
0: perspective? What makes a favorite? Is it is it well somebody how that I can have fun they with? Are, somebody how, have fun with? Fun and are. somebody
1: who enjoys having their picture taken. Because there's some people I actually got to be friends with who I wasn't able to get a good picture of. Um, not too many of them. <laughs> Most of them I get good pictures. But um, do you always look the camera like Green, and be like? Green wow. Day is hysterically funny to hang out with. Kiss is Gene mm-hmm. Simmons is hysterically funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, John Lennon kept you laughing the whole time. Joe mm-hmm. uh, Strummer, we, it wasn't so much funny, but we talked a lot. Very uh, deep conversations. You know, he would say, "I've been thinking and come up with incredible ideas." Mm-hmm. Are there people that
0: when you looked through that lens in that, you know, X factor kind of way that w-
1: just had something so different, so special? Certain people have, have charisma. And uh, actually, we, I once had a panel in South, uh, South by South, where we talked about that, can you dress a person up and make them into a rock store? Right. And uh, John Bovardos was on the panel, in fact. Um, and we decided that, yes, we can tell somebody, you know, buy some clothes, but you can't tell them how to wear it. Right. And haircut is mostly haircut... And, I mean, uh, rock and roll is mostly haircut and attitude. Right. It, it's not what shirt you're wearing, mm-hmm. it's how you wear it. Would you say and, Debbie Harry yeah. was like a... Debbie Harry is very hard to take a bad picture of Debbie right. Harry. She's I absolutely beautiful, it. and her personality is beautiful. So she's always projecting uh, a beautiful look. Um, so it's really hard to take a bad picture of Debbie. We have Chris um, Stein coming on here next week. Oh, oh he's great. Yeah, he's, yeah,
0: And... Um, I don't know if you'll answer this, but most difficult subject?
1: Oh, uh, well, there are occasionally difficult people. Um, There was one guy who was a total asshole, but I don't publicize him. (laughs) I don't say his name. I mean, it does happen. Uh, I remember the publicist saying, he's very fussy. And, you know, uh, I said, I work with a lot of fussy people. But, yeah, there was a guy who was too fussy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But a lot of times when a job is difficult, I enjoy it. Um I don't complain about that because it makes it's a challenge mm-hmm. and it makes me work it makes me think and when I succeed uh it's so much a better feeling like wow that was hard and I did it you know you accomplish something if it's easy you just got it done you know right. but when it's hard uh I don't remember them as difficult I remember them as challenges that I succeeded at right cuz I do work until I succeed I don't I don't quit you know <laughs> no matter how How hard about it is. like the most um
0: and I, I, this may be a silly question to ask someone who stood with Led Zeppelin outside their private jet, but <laughs> the wildest, most debaucherous, like where you Led were. Led Zeppelin like, oh
1: outside God. their jet was a very simple. Eve, afternoon, we were getting on a plane. I said, "Hey, stand here." They did, and we got on the plane. Uh, that was not debauched. I was not with Led Zeppelin when they were debauched. The day I got on the plane, Ahmed Erding was there, and Lisa Robinson, and they were on good behavior. Their lawyers were there, and the managers. Uh, I heard about other stories, but I didn't get to see them. Um, But the most divorced? I don't know. I had a very long day with Ike Turner once. Um, (laughs) uh, I woke up. uh, I I met Ike and Tina in 1970. And by the time, by the summer of 71, I think they'd come back to New York once or twice. I'd seen them a little more. Uh, I spent a couple of days with them when they played a show in Central Park and in the Bronx with the Beach Boys. And uh, I got a really good picture. That was a classic picture with a long blue spotlight coming across mm. the frame, and Tina silhouetted in the light. And I knew it could be an album cover or something special. But by then, I knew enough about Ike's chaotic um, scene because he was taking a lot of coke, and things around him, a lot of the band, a lot of the people involved were, t- you know, pretty high. And, and I knew the only way I could show this picture to Ike was if I took it to him. I couldn't send it to somebody who was going to show it to him. Right. Everybody had their own agendas around him. So I was in New York, and I heard that they were going to play in Washington. And I got up in the morning, and I flew to Washington to go show him the picture. I had about $100 in my pocket. When I got there, I found out I had gone to the wrong airport. Oh, because they were staying in a, in a hotel by the airport. So I went to National instead of Douglas. Douglas is about 80 miles away. Anyway, it was like $80 away. I think it's 40 miles. We get on the highway. The guy tells me this is uh, one highway that has no entrance or exit. It's just the road to the airport. Uh, At that point, it was new or something. And we get to the airport. I get to the hotel. I walk in and they told me that I I had switched hotels and the the gig was really in Baltimore. So they were staying in Baltimore. Some guy overheard my dilemma and said, oh, I'm going into Washington or something. I'm going to a concert. You can come with us. So I'm in the front of a Corvette between him and his beautiful girlfriend and we're flying down the road when he remembers he forgot the tickets. And he said, oh my God, I got to go back. And the tickets, I got to let you off. So he lets me off on this no-entrance, no-exit highway in the middle somewhere, makes a U-turn over the divider and disappears. And I'm standing there starting to hitchhike. The first car is a policeman. (laughs) And of course, I had a little bottle of pot stashed in my camera bag I didn't know how long I was going away for Um, but he turned out to be the good cop, not the bad cop and he even told me, oh good thing I got you because the other guy's older and he hates kids and whatever he takes me all the way to the end of the highway I start hitchhiking, a kid picks me up who worked at the airport drove me to the back door of the hotel in Baltimore I get to the door and I say I'm here with I can the guy goes prove it, I show him a picture he takes the picture and lets me in I get in the dressing room, and uh, I said, I'm here to see Ike. And the manager goes over his little door on the side of the dressing room. He knocks, She knocks on the door, opens a little bit, and says, Ike, Bob Gruen's here to see you. She says, okay, let him come in. She opens the door. I step into a two-foot toilet, and Ike is on the toilet. Now I heard, like, President Johnson used to have meetings like that, but I'm not used to that sort of thing. But I don't let it faze me. He's sitting there. He wants to do it this way. Fine. I said, I, I got a picture to show you. <laughs> I took out the picture. And he's sitting there, he looks at it, he goes, ah, that's a really good picture. What are you doing tomorrow? I said, uh, I didn't have a plan. He goes, well, come to California, take some more pictures. Rhonda will get you the ticket. And um, that was Saturday, and I went to sleep the following Friday when I got on the plane back to New York. <laughs> so that was a very long week. But during that week, on Thursday, I spent the afternoon with Tina. We went shopping, we dropped her kids off at soccer. Uh, we went to a grocery store with a picture of Tina with like three large loaves of Wonder Bread. And as she turned to pay for it, I took a pro- profile picture of Tina. And that was my first album cover photo. Well,
0: <laughs> Had you known, I mean, we now know, of course, what she went through with Ike and
1: all that is all public. I didn't know it then. It, was it- uh, I didn't see any violence at all. Um, I heard a little bit of a rumor about it, but um, I never saw... Uh, any violence. Uh, so everybody was pretty obedient to Ike. Everybody felt Ike was in charge. He was extremely generous to everybody, so everybody really liked Ike. Uh, he gave people jobs, he gave people houses, he gave them cars, he saved them from boyfriends, he did whatever a person needed. Uh, he was a very giving person, and I didn't expect that he would be violent like that. Mm-hmm. it's kind of a tragic Um, irony and all that. You know, later hearing about it, uh, it made sense. You know, it wasn't out of character in that sense, but it was more about what happens to a really good guy who takes way too much cocaine and stays awake for literally, I think his record was 17 or 18 days. That's like two and a half weeks uh, without any sleep. I mean, I got there Saturday, and I literally did not go to sleep until the following Friday. He had very good cocaine, I didn't know anything about cocaine until I met him, but then I knew a lot about it a week later. Well, you became oh. a connoisseur that week, didn't you? Um, it took me a while to get over that, uh. <laughs> about 10 years, but but I did eventually. Um, and like I said, that was my first album cover. Mm-hmm. How about,
0: uh, like, uh, I know you've been on a lot of tours with people.
1: Favorite tour? Hmm. Oh, favorite tour? Oh, I don't know. There's been a couple of good ones. A Clash, probably. Because mm-hmm. uh, they're just really great guys to hang out with and to be with. Uh, New York Dolls, I did a tour with what we called the Dollettes. After they broke up, uh, David and Sil put together a, another band with some newer members. And at one point, we rented a Winnebago in the spring of 70, in the fall of 75. Uh, and I kind of came along as road manager. We had a driver on the highway, but he wasn't good in town, so I had to drive to Winnebago in town. Um, after he crunched the air conditioner under a motel awning, you <laughs> know, those things happen. Um, and that was fun, kind of managing for a while.
0: Well, you talk about being on tour with the Sex Pistols and the mm. and the the dolls, and and some really dark. Sex shit Pistols was like, pretty chaotic, Nolan shooting a, up and all that, like.
1: On, uh, On tour with the Sex Pistols, I didn't know we were in the middle of a hurricane. You know how in the middle of a hurricane there's a blue sky and it's very calm and nice? Yeah. On the bus, we were playing Don Letts reggae tapes, smoking a little pot. Uh, Sid was drinking peppermint schnapps. I think I probably had some cognac. Um, And it was pretty mellow. And then the door would open and these kids were like going crazy. And I remember one time we came to a club, pulled around the back for the sound check. The door opened. There was a bunch of press, like three press people out there with video cameras. And so Steve Jones cleared his throat and spit on the ground, ready to do an interview, and one of the press guys, "Run, they're spitting at us!" <laughs> and that was their story. They already got their shot. <laughs> boom, they were done. And I thought, "But wait, nothing happened yet. <laughs> so for where I was, I didn't know how the world was reacting with such shock and awe, you know, at uh, this rude new group, which I didn't think, it but was it also very seemed very all, dark.
0: You, know? you, you tell a story about mm-hmm. Jerry. And this, I think it's some kid who gave him heroin didn't want. When Jerry
1: he, and Johnny got into the dope around mid-74 or something, they went really downhill. And that was caused the breakup, pretty much, of the Dolls because um, they would show up very late. They weren't playing very well. Uh, they were just nodding out. And uh, when the bottom falls out, the band can't play. Especially, you know, the drums is the foundation. And when he's stoned, the music falls apart. Uh, and it came down, uh, the Donald's were having trouble getting gigs. I mean, there was uh, several factors because they were actually so popular that they would come out on stage and kids would go crazy and wreck a theater. They would stand on the seats and the place would get broken. So even though they were on the cover of lots of magazines, promoters didn't want to book them because their joints would get wrecked. (laughs) It would be oversold and doors would get broken. And and so it was hard for them to get a job. And then finally uh, Malcolm came after their managers quit in early 75, around January, and around then, Malcolm showed up, and he wanted to the band. He didn't want to manage the band. He wanted the band to wear his clothes. He made red outfits for everybody, different leather and gabardine and different materials, but all the same color, bright red. And uh, and he found out that the band was falling apart. They had no management. They had no gigs. So he actually. I credit him with saving Johnny and Jerry's lives because he got them into a hospital and and, and uh, Arthur into an alcohol hospital mm-hmm. um, long enough to wear his clothes and play a gig. So he booked them a couple of gigs, and then he had the idea of them to go down south and play in places where bands didn't play, and that worked with the Sex Pistols. But with the Dolls, they went to the first gig was in a Jerry's mom owned a trailer park motel where you rented out rooms and trailers. That's the kind of motel. <laughs> and they had a big trailer that was a, 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 like a double-wide that was a mess hall, a, you know, a cafeteria. And that's where the dolls played their last show. Um, they were supposed to play in there. Jerry and, and uh, uh, Johnny went to go and get dope. Uh, and they didn't like the dope they could find in Florida. And they said they had to go back to New York because they were addicted. They had to have drugs. And David told them, if you go back... For the drugs, drugs are more important than the band, and the band is over. And uh, he got back to New York two days later, and he called and told me. He said, well, they said drugs were more important. And for the rest of his life, Johnny kept saying, I want to be back in the band. Why won't David let me in the band? I said, because you're still a junkie. You know, he, he, Who wants to travel with a junkie who's going to get caught at the airport, who can't make a gig because he's trying to cop somewhere? Right. I mean, junkies are a liability. Yeah. So it was very sad, but that's what happened to the end of that band. Yeah." And, uh, and with uh, Sid
0: and Johnny in, uh, in The Pistols, you know, the public persona of them is, you know, exactly what we all look at and see But mm. you spend time with them. Was there any kind of uh, sweetness to either of them or? A, 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 oh, yeah, there's a, definitely a
1: sensitivity to both of them. I mean, on the one hand, Sid was madly in love with Nancy, uh, probably the only person who could be, but they were a couple and they loved each other. And on the tour, he talked about missing her a lot. Uh, he was 21 when he died. I yeah, no, you
0: know. Crazy.
1: Which was a year after the tour. He was 20 years old on the tour. Um, you know, he was very young. And Johnny this was about the same. They were all kids. And um, it's interesting. They just made a movie about the, uh, based on Steve Jones' book, uh, Pistol. And it's out on TV now. And it's, I, I liked it a lot uh, in the sense that we saw the first two episodes and it's a lot of funny parts, very cute, young kids get a band together. Malcolm is hilarious. He's, uh, he was hilarious and he's funny in the film. And then Nancy shows up with Sid and then the film just starts to get dark and go downhill. And the, when I first liked, saw it, I didn't like it at all by the end. I was like, this is really horrible. And then I realized that that was true to life. That's the way it was. Everything was really fun until Nancy showed up and Sid started taking the dope and it all went downhill.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: it's the same thing with the dolls. As soon as Johnny and Jerry got onto the dope, boom, it went downhill. Now, they managed to carry on as the Heartbreakers, but almost in a sense where they had a reputation for being erratic. Maybe they won't show up. Maybe he'll fall off the stage, And people would come to see a train wreck and they would advertise, catch them while they're still alive. <laughs> it's a hell Which of a pretty it. sick, but they knew where they were at. Right. And, uh, they had a lot of trouble getting off the drugs. I remember one time when Johnny actually did go to a rehab, mm-hmm. came back sober, was trying to stay sober. We were standing at, in the mud, cl- in the cat club, and some kid came up and said, H.I., hey, you want to go smoke a joint with me? And Johnny says, No, I'm trying not to do that. And the guy goes, Well, what good are you then? Mm-hmm. You know, like you can't party, you know what like he used to. So he was under that kind of pressure. And um, it was very difficult. What
0: was it like going through that period as a, as a, as a fan, as an aficionado? As a photographer, professional, ha- having come from the, the the '60s and '70s, which was all about peace and love, and and you know there was certainly a lot of drugs as well. But the, the punk scene, which I, I personally never got into at the time, because I was still stuck in the '60s and '70s, still kind of there. Um, but that was m- so dark, and and there was it, anger not necessarily and violence not, no not
1: and, necessarily the press picked it up like that. Uh, In one sense, what really made Punk and certainly made the Sex Pistols was that they cursed on TV on a slow news day. And the next day, they had giant headlines because nothing else was happening. It said, the filth and the fury. And the filth and the fury and the anger was that this guy kind of egged them on to say something rude, and they did. There was no filth or fury. They used a curse word that's very common, but they used it on TV where you're not supposed to. And this is not hurting anybody. This is not a war. This is not even a a robbery. You know, this is using a curse word in public. However, that was national news all over London, and it was news in the sense that they called it the filth and the fury, as if there was anger behind that, when in fact they were just answering this drunk commentator who told them to say something rude. So there was no fury, and the filth was manufactured. In fact, what I feel about the the punk movement was that it was a a positive movement for change. It was. Mm -hmm. if you listen to The Clash, they're talking about a, a better world. What are you going to do now is the is the beginning of one of their songs. The, the Sex Pistols' songs are looking back with anger, but The Clash's songs are looking to the future with hope. And there's a lot of punk that looks to the future with hope. And, uh, and, and it makes fun of things in their songs. I mean, Germ-Free Adolescent and you know a lot of funny songs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, My Baby Makes Good Sculpture, yeah. I mean, there's loads of punk songs that are just fun but it got a bad name one day you know one slow news day when somebody cursed it's really kind of funny how they got so out of hand Uh, but yes punks are often loud they're often angry with good reason things were I mean in England in the 70s there was no money there was there was no future you know in many places there's still no future you go to college and you come out and you hope you get a job at McDonald's that's what people study for uh, that's pretty low future. So, yeah, people get angry about that. And they sing out about that. But it's no different from Woody Guthrie singing out about unions. It's just louder. Because Woody Guthrie didn't have an electric guitar. You know, we got power. <laughs> you know, we have electricity. We have amplification. So uh, it got a lot louder. But it's not any different. You know, I grew up, My my first concert, first concert I sat in a music hall and heard, a singer, it was Pete Seeger, and it was a positive message, and he was talking about a better future for the world, for everybody. And uh, I got hooked. I like songs with a good message.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, speaking of uh, uh, Sid, there's a funny story in your
1: book about the boots. Ah, yes. (laughs) Sid wanted to kill me for my boots. Um, They were actually the same kind of boots that Johnny Thunders wore, and Sid idolized Johnny Thunders. And in fact, they were the same because Johnny's boots had gotten stolen and he asked me to bring him a pair in England. So I went to the store to buy a pair for him and I liked them, so I bought a pair for me. So on tour, Sid saw that I was wearing the same boots he knew Johnny had. At one point, I took the boots off and I was sleeping on one of the benches, the couches that are in the front of the fancy buses we had. And um, I fell asleep and I woke up and he was wearing my boots. And he had a pair of kind of worn in paratrooper boots then he left them on the floor where my boots were. And I found out, uh, sitting across from me where I was sleeping, Johnny Rotten and another photographer had been sitting there, and they told me that Sid had taken his knife out, he had a big hunting knife, and held it to my neck and said to them, if I kill him, I can have his boots. Now, part of the story I don't really like is that they did nothing. They waited to see what would happen. Would he kill me or not? <laughs> you, know, it was a, you know, you're bored on a bus, you wonder, you know, you, you like a little entertainment. So they just watched, they put the knife away and he put my boots on. Now the boots I had, they have a steel toe in the front. They're engineer boots and very well solidly made. But at a concert in England one time, I had stood one foot on top of the other to try to get an inch higher over the crowd to take a picture. And that had bent my steel toe down a little bit, steel cap. And I tried to get a shoemaker to bend it up but he couldn't get in there to bend steel without breaking the leather or something. So it was irritating, he got it a little better, but as I walked, if he stepped a certain way, it would cut into my toe. So in fact, I didn't really like those boots. So when Sid said, I'll take your boots and you can have mine, I said, let me try yours. (laughs) And I put his boots on and they were wide bottom for paratroopers to, and I remember swinging off the bus and jumping down about five feet and landing nice and soft and thinking, these are so much better than my boots, so much more comfortable. And the best part of the story is that in the next 2 days each one of the band members Paul and Steve and Johnny himself came up to me separately and said look you know we like having you here on the tour don't be intimidated by Sid you he, you don't have to let him have your boots or you can't stay on the tour if you want your boots back just tell him and we'll back you up and you're on the tour it has nothing to do with the boots and I said well that's okay let him play with my boots for a while <laughs> cuz my feet were so much more comfortable so on the last day of the tour They wanted to buy American leather jackets, and we ended up in a big leather store in San Francisco, and I saw the exact same kind of boots, same brand and everything. I said, hey, Sid, get yourself your own pair of boots. It'll be your size. You break them in for yourself. And he said, no, no, I want to keep your boots already broken in, but I'll buy you a new pair of boots. So I got a new pair of boots, which were not bent in the front, and I still have Sid Vicious's boots. So if you ever see a paratrooper boots by Sid Vicious on the internet, you'll know that I'm very broke. (laughs) (laughs) Someday they'll be on eBay. eBay, right. (laughs) Or my Um, son will put them on eBay or something. (laughs) Or they'll go to a museum. It's very funny because the boots that Sid took are actually in a museum of criminality, which is in a castle in England. And it's with, theoretically, what was supposed to be Sid's necklace, although I don't think it's an actual one. But the boots are the actual boots that I was wearing that are now called Sid Vicious's Boots and in this museum of criminality because they consider Sid a murderer. Um, which, by the way, I personally don't think he did. I don't think that Sid murdered Nancy. I think Sid loved Nancy far too much. Um, what do you think did happen? Uh, I think somebody else was in the room that night. And nobody knows, nobody can prove it. Sid died in jail. They never followed up. He was never found guilty or innocent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they just let it drop because it was just two dead junkies. They didn't care. Wow. So the intro of your book, I want to read
0: something back. Uh, This is a quote. I took my first concert photos at the 1965 Newport Folk Festival when Bob Dylan famously shocked the world by going electric. Camped at the Woodstock Music Festival. Met John and Yoko... ...at an Aretha Franklin concert and became their friend and personal photographer. Drove Tina Turner's Jaguar down the Pacific Coast Highway in a fog so thick I couldn't see the road. Was a CBGB for the birth of the New York punk scene. Became friends with the notoriously wild Keith Moon. Toured with the ever-colorful New York Dolls. Rode the bus with the Sex Pistols. Had a long and hopeful conversation with John Lennon two nights before he was murdered. Flew with Green Day in their private plane. Hosted Joe Strummer on my couch. Took the first photos of John and Yoko's baby Sean, and I'll never forget... Debbie Harry Kissing Me on New Year's Eve, 1975, Alaska. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say to Matt earlier, like, you're the gump of rock and roll. Like, it's just- <laughs> I get around. <laughs> it's amazing. The, I mean, I'm going all fanboy here. I have no shame. These are my heroes.
1: These story. like, I wish I could be a fly on the wall. You were the, you were the fly. I was, <laughs> yes. I did that. Quite often, um, you have to be in a situation without attracting attention and not distracting from the situation. Uh, Somebody else once asked me how you do that. I said, by being part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very often I would bring something to the situation um, or just not interfere. Um, I had an older brother who was a major asshole, and I had to learn to avoid him, and that served me well for the rest of my life. (laughs) Uh, So you never know what blessings you get, because for a long time I didn't like him until I realized, like, that was part of my training, you know, growing up with him. So... um, and I don't know. I get along with people. People said, "How come?" John... One time, I got a question in an interview with somebody he said, "Why do people like John Lennon or Joe Strummer call you up?" And I kind of said, "Well, you'll have to ask them." I mean, I don't know why people like me. Ask my wife; she likes me. <laughs> why? Why do you like him? <laughs> He's a mensch. <laughs> a mensch. There you go. <laughs> I do for, the right thing. Thanks as for mentioning as that. I, I, I do the right thing as often as I can. Uh-huh. I try to be positive. I try to be helpful. But do you think the I times was Scout, were so different know? back then, where
0: like you, it's it. What I took away from your book is that, like, there weren't layers of publicists and people and reps and teams. And it was that. easier. Like, back you could just then. meet John Lennon, and he'd be like, "Hey, come over to my my well, apartment." Well, not tomorrow. exactly. Like,
1: he had a few layers, but I happened to be lucky and and meet him for an interview, and they liked me and liked my pictures. Um, but in fact, the first time I spoke to Yoko about that, and she told me to stay in touch with them. She said, "We have many people that we hire to keep people away from us. Don't let them stop you. If somebody." says you can't reach us. Just wait a couple hours and call back, and that's why I'm still in touch with Yoko today.
0: <laughs> you know? One of the things I loved about the book is that you, with the place you are at in your career, uh, you approach a lot of this stuff as a fan, and you're not ashamed to say when you felt like a fan or like when like when you know when you when you met you know oh my god that's a Beatle or when you met Bob mm. Dylan you mm-hmm. know even though the reaction. I was (laughs) talking to Bob Dylan. It was weird. (laughs) It sounds like you guys have like a great love-hate relationship. The
1: first time I had any contact, he was walking out of the bottom line, and I saw him coming and knew he was going to have to walk past me. And I set my camera for about five feet, and I had a powerful kind of flash attachment. And as he came, I lifted the camera up, and when he was five feet away, bang, I shot a picture right in his face. And that kind of thing is kind of annoying, I think, to a person. And I think he was annoyed because he came at me. He gave me the finger. And he placed it right on my cheek and very softly. And I was like, oh my God, God touched me and told me to get fucked. <laughs> you well, you, you say something like,
0: which I thought was very well, when, funny. When I, I met funny. him
1: in Berlin, I thought like, oh my God, I met God and he wants to kill me. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> which actually in my mind made me a lot stronger because after that I had no heroes. There was nobody I could look up to or be protected by. I had to believe in myself. Mm-hmm. And that's a good lesson to know that you're on your own, and you can believe in yourself, mm-hmm. and deal with whatever. And, and uh... but it gets back to what you were saying before mm-hmm. about you know
0: putting yourself in the right place at the right time. Well, you got to get off the couch you know, and go out. Like he did. Dylan <laughs> was coming at you, you you got you wanted that shot. Uh, you did. didn't say, Mister yeah.
1: Dylan, can I take that? that shot? That wouldn't have worked. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> like you I know? say, you got it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> um, and so I want to talk about. Uh, uh, John and Yoko. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to preface it by saying I'm a huge Beatles fan. Uh, That's and, normal. And uh, <laughs> well, we one of the things we do here um, uh, every week with a guest is we, we ask them who their top five musical artists are of all time. And it's surprising and a little saddening that not a lot of people say the Beatles in in the top five. Well, it's only
1: just, 50, more than 50 years ago. Yeah. So well,
0: but I mean, like to me, there's the most Beatles. Most people
1: are under 50.
0: <laughs> then there's everybody else, right?
1: But, well, in a sense, yeah. And, There's also the Rolling Stones, but, even in the '60s, <laughs> especially well, in the '60s.
0: Well, the interesting thing with the Stones is that you know, they're playing 50, 60 years now. But the Beatles basically did everything the Beatles did in like what seven years.
1: Like that's the the, the creation. Well, they got so complicated; then, it would be difficult for them to play. And uh, yeah. once the Bible fanatics were threatening their life, you know, they got a, after John. Uh, was quoted about saying that uh, they were bigger than uh, Jesus and that was misunderstood. They got a lot of death threats and they were afraid to go out in public and they got very complicated in the studio to the point where they couldn't play live the kind of music they were playing without an orchestra. And in those days, bands didn't have orchestras. Um, Nowadays, they do. (laughs) I, I remember when I saw The Who, the first time I saw The Who, I was stunned that it was just three people Playing the instruments and one guy singing, but the three people playing the instruments were making so much music. And then 20 years later, in I think in the late 80s, I was sober. I went to Mansfield with my agent, and who had not just the three guys, but they had a horn section, a choir. Extra drums. And I turned to my agent and I said, it really is an orchestra. I was so drunk, I thought it was just three guys. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's like, I'm a big Hendrix fan. Back in the day, you know, you, hmm. you listen to Hendrix and then you realize there's Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell yeah. and Jimmy, and that's it. It's just a couple of putting making that, all of that sound. Yeah, inc- incredible. Yeah. You have a funny Hendrix story. Uh Oh, that I ran
1: into him. Yeah, yeah I actually it was that Tina Turner picture. I, my first day I printed it really big uh, and I was going to bring it to California to give to Tina, so I made a big print And I came out of the subway at Sheridan Square and uh, Jimmy had a studio that was on 8th Street. And you walk across uh, Christopher Street to um, Bleecker Street was where there was a great soul food restaurant called the Pink Teacup. And he was crossing Sheridan Square as I came out of the subway with this giant picture. And I just took it upon myself. I wanted to show it to him and maybe work with him. And so I literally followed him down Christopher Street. He went into the restaurant. I stood outside for a couple of minutes. Do I bother him or not? Because people hate being bothered when they're with friends having lunch or something. And I thought, well, yes, I do. I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I took the picture out of the wrapping. And I walked in. I held this picture up. And I said, I'd love to show you this picture. And he looked up at it. he said, wow, that's a really good picture. And I said, well, I'd like to take your picture. And he said, well, we'll meet again. And he lied. <laughs> he died about a month or two later. Yeah, wow, well, that's an incredible story. So, John and Yoko, me, me, me,
0: what was it like, I mean, this is going to sound just cheesy no matter how I phrase mm. it, but like, he was a Beatle, right? Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you don't, especially when you met him, it's Well, not When like,
1: I met him, he was an ex-Beatle. Right, but, um, but
0: still right in that prime. It's kind of
1: funny because Yoko, one time somebody did an interview and it turned out that Yoko often uh, would carry a few hundred dollar bills. So, when she walked through Central Park- she would see a guitar player playing, and she would put a $100 bill. She said it always reminded her of her ex-husband, an out-of-work guitar player. Mm, well, wow. <laughs> What was it
0: like meeting and, and getting in that inner circle that way, That having
1: getting that trust? Uh, that it was always kind of special, uh, even after I got very comfortable visiting the, the Dakota and talking to Yoko and John. Uh, and then when I left, I would think, you know, I just talked to John and Yoko. <laughs> And it was always, you know, and there, he's John Leonard and I'm not. You know, (laughs) there was always, as close and comfortable as we got, there there was always a separation that he was that guy. And I I put it in the book, actually, because when we first met for a while and he was playing with the Elephant's Memory, it was all new songs that he had written, Sometime in New York City album. But then he started rehearsing to do the one-to-one concert at Madison Square Garden. And the first time I went to rehearsal and they did a couple of the political songs from the new album and then he did like cold turkey or imagine and all of a sudden it wasn't just this guy john that i was meeting in new york it was like oh my god it's that voice he's one of the beatles (laughs) it was like i remember getting chills like oh my god it's real he's really that guy (laughs) yeah no it's funny i Um, i was uh but he was so much fun to be with he was always making people laugh (laughs) so it was very easy to be with him I was open.
0: in uh, Liverpool uh, uh, on a vacation with my late wife, and we went to, uh, uh, we took this two hour tour mm. all over Liverpool. It was like the Beatles tour. Uh, private black taxi, this woman drove us around. We uh-huh. went to the Fourthland Road uh, home of Paul McCartney when uh-huh. I was like 15 to 24. Right. And we're standing there, and it's a tiny, I don't know if you've ever been in that place, but it's literally yeah. the living room was about
1: this big. Uh-huh. Big window that looks on the street over there. Fireplace we went here. to John's house and where the Beatles rehearsed, and it's amazing that four people could fit in the room, yeah, well, much same less with, with equipment.
0: <laughs> so in his living room, yeah. there's a framed black and white photo of John and Paul sitting on the floor, cross-legged, mm. with guitars, and they're clearly working out a song. And all of a sudden, I look at the photo, and I look at the wall, and I look at the fireplace, and I'm like, it's I'm there. standing right. in that spot. <laughs> and you talk about chills. I got such chills. That it was like you start thinking of all those songs that they wrote. Yeah, I- at that in period, that all those early right. songs. It's like, oh my god! But um, the thing, you know, the thing that I loved uh, that you did in the book, uh, which is something that's always fascinated me and interested me, is there's it's John and Yoko, John and Yoko, John and Yoko, mm. and there's John and then Yoko, right? Mm. You sort of broke that out. And you, you describe Yoko in ways that a lot of people either don't know,
1: don't care to know. Mm. Uh, she's so misunderstood. She's very misunderstood. Uh, as John once said, John Lennon, uh, I think in one of his interviews, he said that Yoko is the most. Um, uh, she's the most well-known, unknown artist. Everybody knows who she is and nobody knows what she does. She has had many, I mean, more recently now, the younger generation knows a lot more about Yoko Ono because they're open to her art. Uh, When John met Yoko, it was at her own one-woman show. In the early 60s, for a woman to have her own exhibition in an art gallery was a big deal in the first place. For a woman to be in in an art gallery was a big deal, but to have her own solo show was enormous. In the avant-garde world that Yoko was dealing with, it's a very intellectual Uh, art scene. Uh, It's not a pop scene like Yellow Submarine or the Beatles, you know. Uh, So Beatle fans didn't really know what she did. Uh, England, being somewhat racist at the time, didn't like the fact that she was a foreigner. She was Japanese. She wasn't a beautiful model. She actually had things to say. Everything she's ever said in public is about communication and love and peace. And actually, most of the things that the Beatles say are about love and peace. Some of their most famous songs are about, I want to hold your hand, all you need is love. Uh, and, you know, John's famous songs, Give Peace a Chance and things like that. They wrote with Yoko, actually. Um, and yet she was vilified. And these four, you know, to say that Yoko had anything to do with the breakup of the Beatles is an insult to the Beatles. They did what they wanted. John doesn't do what a girlfriend tells him to do. He was a very independent person. Uh, he was with Yoko entirely by choice. If you listen to anything he ever said in an interview or any of his songs, um, Yoko was his grounding. I mean, John actually said often that John and Yoko was one word, uh, that they were uh, a team. They were the half of the sky, you know, that they were uh, that. T- and most of my pictures, they're touching each other. They're so in touch that they're literally physically touching each other. Well, the, the stuff shell, like the, the Hit Factory together. and
0: the, the, the dancing
1: photos and just yeah. the. the- they were very much in There's a love the story there that yeah. I don't think people and understand. And what was funny, actually, about John and Yoko is that when I first got to, with John and Yoko, uh, some of the guys that were hanging out with Elvin's memory, everybody said, let's get John out for drinking. Let's have fun with John. Forget that woman. He doesn't need to be home with her all the time. And people thought Yoko had something to do with the Beatles breakup and all kinds of reasons. They just hated Yoko. Mm-hmm. Then John took off. He, he he got After the concert and after the record, the political record came out, he got pretty bad reviews uh, they played a rollicking rock and roll concert and everybody was expecting the Beatles and they hated the music that they were playing and Yoko sang a half a dozen songs so the critics hated it um, the album didn't sell well and, uh, and John got very drunk and then Nixon was elected and John got even drunker and embarrassed Yoko very much uh, and so Yoko finally said look if you're just going to be drunk go do it somewhere else go to California you know and you and that's what he did. Um, and in fact, he got very drunk. And At one point, the boys called up Yoko and said, we need help. And she said, you wanted him, you got him. <laughs> and she wasn't going to take him back until he sobered up and wanted to, you know, was aware enough to come back. And that took 18 months. But um, you read about May Pang and that whole period. Yeah. like, well, May Being Pang around them, John's- did you
0: ever sense that, like, this girl's got an eye on John? Like, did you ever no, sense any no, of that? No, no, no.
1: Mae was John's secretary, John Yoko's mm-hmm. secretary. And uh, John is not the first executive to sleep with his secretary.
0: and what? Basically
1: like that. <laughs> you know. Um, Yoko knew that John was going to be randy and drunk and do whatever he felt like, so she actually asked May to keep an eye on him uh, to try to keep him from, from getting in trouble, which she did a very good job with. She had a very hard job, and she did it very well, but there was not a love story. When her book came out, she calls her book Loving John, she doesn't call it, we were in love or our love. She calls it loving John because that's what she did. It's not what John did. He wrote songs about Yoko. He didn't write any songs about May. He wrote several songs about how desperately he needed Yoko. Well, you wrote you so wrote a line the story, in the, mo- in the
0: book. Uh, uh, give me if I'm not getting exactly right, but you said when people ask me about... What kind of woman is Yoko Ono? Oh, Otto? yes. When people
1: ask me what kind of woman Yoko Ono is, I always say that she's the kind of woman John Lennon could marry. That's, I mean, that's it right there. And then, that right? says it all. Because mm-hmm. he had his choice. I'll tell you yeah. that. And so it's, if, you,
0: <laughs> if you like John Lennon, if you love John Lennon, if you admire and respect John Lennon,
1: then based on what he says, says you, you, and, you have to and learn about, the same Yoko. Way about Yoko. When I first met Yoko and I saw her singing in the studio, I had no idea what that noise that she was making was about. And when she played in Madison Square Garden and 15 of the 20,000 people booed her, mm-hmm. I really didn't understand what she was doing. But a year later, she took me to Japan, and I saw an audience in Japan cheering and understanding the emotion of her vocalization. That No, she's not singing in any sense of singing. She's using her voice similar to the way her friend Ornette Coleman uses his saxophone. She's expressing her feelings orally with sound but not singing. She's making emotional sounds. And then it makes a whole different thing if you listen to what she's saying. And then over the years, in the 80s, she started performing. Uh, the last couple of times we saw her, it was amazingly emotional. Um, she was like, what? Over oh, 85 or something. Last time I saw her play with uh, Sean, she could. She was in a wheelchair. They got her up to the balcony. I don't know how she made it down. They have a rickety stairs in the Irving Plaza, the back stairs from the dressing room to the stage it looks like it's from 1890 it's this old narrow little crooked stairs so anyway she made it down the stairs got on the stage they gave her a microphone and her voice bounced off the back wall I mean she could still definitely put out her emotions and and it's very impressive once you learn what she's doing and a younger generation has you know uh, they booed her at Madison Garden but years later probably 10 years ago I think or 15 I lose track of time now that I'm older um, but a while ago, at the South by Southwest, she did a show, and it was 1 o'clock in the morning when she was doing her encore. And after the third encore, this entire room full of maybe 1,500 young people was cheering for more. That that warmed my heart because I saw her take a lot of abuse over the years. And to see people actually appreciate what she's doing and how she does it uh, was really coming around you know when somebody's ahead of their time they have to live a long time for people to catch yeah, well, up well it's like you know and luckily she did she was 90 years old two weeks ago yeah
0: well there are people you know when it comes to art people sometimes if it's not simple and it's easy and accessible and poppy and all that like you know i'm sure exactly i'm sure someone exactly. said to mr you know, picasso see the-, the eyeball doesn't go over here uh, you know yeah, what I mean? well, like he, that kind of stuff
1: exactly people don't you know they, they they talk about how he was not respected when he started out and how people like van gogh never saw the painting in his life uh but the reality of that is, yes, he was made fun of. Yes, he was ostracized. I remember when Andy Warhol was a laughingstock. Silver balloons floating around a room that he called art. A Brillo box that he signed. Who would do that? And now he's a genius. You know? <laughs> like, um, and yes, yeah, so it took a while for people to catch up on Yoko. You know, But uh, John liked it from the beginning. And the thing that people don't understand about Yoko, because uh, in Japan... When you take a photo, people are generally serious. You don't smile. You don't say cheese because life is serious. And so You mm-hmm. don't appear smiley for no reason. So that's the way Yoko grew up. So when there's pictures of her, she was generally pretty no expression, pretty serious expression. And, uh, and so people think that she's serious, but you couldn't, couldn't live with John Lennon if you didn't have a sense of humor. Yoko can be as funny as John was. I'm mean, sitting with the two of them. You're just laughing back and forth. It's like he said something, she said something, he said something. He's just laughing the whole afternoon. Yeah, um, I, I it think it's one of the York most misunderstood love
0: love affairs ever, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Um, it, when when my wife died, I started a foundation which supports women filmmakers. And when we had our first benefit, I wrote a letter to to yoko and i was like well i know where she lives right it's not yeah. that difficult <laughs> she to got find all her the
1: she personally read all her yeah
0: mail. i sent her a letter and i said you know <laughs> yeah. get straight to the point you and i are in a very mm. small club we both mm. were married to 40 year old artists mm. kind of coming on a comeback mm. uh, who were murdered in new york city mm. that's a really small club uh and mm. um i would love you to come to my benefit and mm-hmm. i would love to introduce you to the crowd and just have you be a part of it and uh, her assistant at the time sent me a letter, uh, an email back and said, uh, and I remember walking down the street looking at my BlackBerry at the time going, from Yoko Ono's assistant. It I is almost kind of fun died. to get a I almost died. Them, yeah. <laughs> and she <laughs> said, she got your letter. She's really appreciative of it, appreciates mm. everything you said. She'll be out of the country that date but um, she wants to send you. And she threw out a number, which was unbelievable as a donation. And wow. she did that for years. Years later, when I when I um, I directed and produced a documentary about my late wife called Adrian, mm. which is on HBO Max, if you want to watch it, uh, Adrian and I danced to "Oh My Love" at our wedding. Oh, and I wrote again uh-huh. to Yoko, and I said I can't imagine making a movie about my life, my wife's life, her death, mm. our wedding, and not use that song. But mm. you know, that's yeah. you know, we have our small documentary budget. Yeah. and she budget. was. <laughs> I won't tell you what she did, but I will say that she was incredibly generous and made it doable and we got that song and 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 got it for a song and uh it was incredibly meaningful to wow. me and th- all of that showed all me that the kind of stuff person yoko she does was.
1: things like that constantly mostly anonymously or she would be inundated or she is inundated but she'd be even more right. um i mean john and yoko did things like when uh, all the hippies hated the police but they realized that the police were protecting us mm-hmm and they bought the policemen a um, hundred bulletproof vests. Later in the eighties, one of Yoko's bodyguards was a policeman whose life had been saved by one of those vests.
0: Well, you said something about them, which I want to find here. Uh, it was to the effect of they weren't against anything.
1: No, John and Yoko were very f- positive. One time I had a conversation with Yoko about that. They were not against the war. They were in favor of peace. You know, uh, John also, as far as politics, he felt that as an English, a British person, it was not his place to tell people who to vote for, to interfere in that sense in American politics. But he constantly told people to vote, to think about what they were doing and to go out and vote. Um, So they were always trying to be positive and not negative. You know, instead of no more war, it was yes to peace. What about the photo Uh, Well, there was one thing actually that
0: that you wrote that I I literally was sobbing when I read it, and that was when, um, because I've been in that space. Is when uh, I think you said two days after John died, Mm -hmm. uh, Yoko. Oh, she published a piece, and he said, "Now Daddy's everywhere." Oh, right, when she told Sean that. uh, Yeah, when she told Sean that his father was gone
1: and wasn't coming home, and Sean said, "Now he's everywhere." Right. Uh, it is what a profound thing to say for for an eight for a five year old yeah for a five year old Sean's pretty profound. I mean, he grows up that way. Um, on a completely different subject, Yoko had a party several years later, and Sean was eight, and uh, Yoko had a party. I think um, and she had a lot of her friends. Sean had a younger party, but uh, Andy Warhol and Keith Haring, and I think um, oh oh yeah, Steve Jobs was there. Iggy Pop, Phil Spector, a lot of Yoko's friends. <laughs> a very interesting night of people. And anyway, Sean ended up spending a lot of time with Andy Warhol and Keith Haring. And they were talking a lot. I've never seen Andy talk. I saw Andy in a lot of different places. He hardly ever said a word in public. But he and Sean were having a real conversation. And they were making little drawings for each other. And uh, Sean made a Andy, and, uh, you know, a, a big drawing with Andy, with like, like, uh, like Jackie Curtis's tattoo with a big A with a-, a and D-Y in the middle and signed it Sean Lennon and gave it to Andy. And Andy Warhol made a big Sean with a S was a dollar sign. He signed it Andy and gave it to Sean. And Sean pushed it back and said, that just says Andy. <laughs> that could be Andy anybody. Sign Andy Warhol. He was eight years old. That's pretty <laughs> crazy. <laughs> and so the, 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 so, the, so later, the two of them were playing with a napkin with magic markers. They were still making drawings, but they were on like a Miles Vandero kind of I don't remember who the designer was, but they were like $25,000 uh, Art Deco chairs, mm-hmm. white and black. And they were writing on the armchair of it. And so the Magic Margaret, was going through onto the chair. And there's a party and people are all around it. I was facing them and Yoko was very kind about it. She kind of turned her back to them and faced me and said, is Sean making trouble over there? And I said, no, but I think his friends are. <laughs> and then I said, you know, I've never seen Andy Warhol so in conversation with somebody. And you know, been talking to Sean. He's eight years old, and Yoga said, "Well, he found somebody on his own mentality level." That was a funny story. <laughs> There's A lot of jealousy between artists, you know. <laughs> now you've taken—I
0: mean, to say the word iconic is not even enough of of Lenin. I mean, the the peace sign at the Statue of Liberty, the New York City T-shirt. I mean, that those two photos are everywhere in the world. You cannot take—they mm, take get beat. around. They get around. And I don't want to I hate to say the word favored because there's such sadness and tragedy attached mm. to it, but, but the most poignant photo I think you've taken uh, is of Yoko setting up her photo. Oh, with of the, the glasses. glasses that was a very, very, very difficult time. But it's an amazing um, photo. it's such an amazing photo because it's just you're, you're watching her in her process of grief. It's one which of the very
1: few p- pictures of her actually doing her work Um, because so much of her work is mental, just her typing, you know, uh, statements and things. But um, she called me up in the morning and asked me to come and help her take a picture. And then when I got there, she said she was going to take a picture of John's glasses on the windowsill. And could I light it so we had in, you know, the glasses would be backlit, that we had some light and everything would be bright, you know, even though the light was coming in from the window. So I set up a light to light it from the front. And, um... And then when she took the glasses out of a cabinet in a box and unwrapped them, we were both crying, just being in the presence and seeing the glasses with John's blood on them. And the glasses are actually broken. It was a very dramatic uh, moment when he was shot and the glasses were broken and there's, there's his blood on them. And she handled them, I think, with gloves and we put them on the windowsill. And then uh, she started telling me how she wanted the picture to look. And I said, well, you know how you want it to look. Let me give you the camera, and you look through the viewfinder and just take a lot of pictures of what you think you'd like it to look like, and then we'll pick out a good one from the ones you take. So then she was taking the picture, and suddenly I had nothing to do. (laughs) I'm not usually in that situation. So I was watching her take. So I took my other camera and said, well, I better take a picture of her doing this. And it turned out to be, like I said, one of the few pictures of her actually at work. It's an incredible photo. Uh, what she created is a very, very powerful image. Uh, when we made some prints, the first prints we had, one of her assistants came in and we showed it to him. And at first he said, what is that? And then he, in shock, he realized what he was looking at. And he was horrified. And Yoko and I looked at each other and knew that we had done it right, because you're supposed to be horrified by something like that. Um, And the fact is that Yoko was there when it happened and you're just seeing these remnant, these broken glasses that are left over and you feel so horrified. So many times people were saying to me, how does Yoko feel? How is Yoko doing? When you see that picture, you get a tiny glimpse of how Yoko's feeling. And that's what Yoko's very good at is sharing those kind of feelings and not holding back if it's a bad feeling. If it's a bad feeling, you should know what it is. But it was done so artistically, though. If she was able to feel that, why shouldn't you as well? Uh, She had an exhibit where she put the bloody clothes. They gave John's clothes back to her in a paper bag. Well, she put that paper bag in an exhibit, and people said, that's horrifying. I said, yeah, it is horrifying. It's supposed to be horrifying. You should be horrified when somebody's murdered. Yep. And she shares those feelings, and... It's the thing about her art. Actually, a lot of her art brings up hard feelings or bad feelings or painful feelings, I should say. And people don't like having painful feelings. Yeah, no, I, I get it. she's very good at bringing these feelings up. And rather than looking at the art and saying, oh, my God, Yoko's so good to bring up these painful feelings, people say, oh, God, I feel terrible. I hate Yoko. She made me feel bad. And so they say Yoko's terrible. But in fact, she's really good at doing that mm-hmm. and making people aware of the things that are painful. No, you have to.
0: Sometimes people have to understand and, and walk in that shoe. I mean, like, I, you know, I, I have a paper bag of those clothes. You know what I yeah. mean? I have, I I've lived that moment. So, right. and that's right. why I, I understood uh, what maybe a lot of people didn't understand. You know, I was a, uh, um, uh, a sophomore at Stony Brook uh, on mm. December 8th, huh? 1980. I didn't know John Lennon like you do. And mm-hmm. I remember how I felt that mm. night, how millions of people felt. Mm. I can't imagine when you had that. It's very, very difficult
1: when your friend is a celebrity who dies because the whole world loses a celebrity, but you lose a person. And it's happened to me several times when Joe Stromer died, uh, a number of other people I knew, uh, but most importantly with John Lennon because the whole world mourned. Uh, I don't think he had any idea how many people would be so upset. Uh, And the fact that he didn't have a disease, he didn't die naturally, he was murdered for no reason. And, uh, and that really struck people so painfully. Um, certainly, it was the worst phone call I ever got, um, the most painful thing, and and it's something you never get over. I kind of liken it to when you get a deep cut or mm-hmm. something, a wound, and it hurts a lot when it happens, and eventually over time, you'll form a scar, and you'll start to heal, but it never goes away, mm-hmm. and when you touch that scar, you feel the pain right yep fresh right and that's why the subject of know? closure is so weird so you never get over it but you get used to it and you live with pain and that's the difference between adults and kids you know you, you learn to live with pain
0: my last question, if you don't mind, Elizabeth, it's mm-hmm. for both of you <laughs> because there's a quote in your book which I love it's, it's about I'm marriage. Here with my beautiful wife Elizabeth. it's about marriage Oh okay. And it says, being married is not about finding the person you can live with. Right. It's about finding the person you can't live without. Exactly. Which I, it's one of my favorite things that I've ever heard. Because I, I had that kind of relationship. I know what that was like. And uh, you too. I mean, uh,
1: I do you feel live that? I feel like the most blessed person. I, I live in luxury because I live with the most beautiful, creative, talented, considerate person I've ever met. Mm-hmm.
0: It's and she's pretty. <laughs> and she's like, eh,
1: Bob, eh. Oh, and she likes me. She well, puts up with me.
0: Bob, you've been very generous with your time. This has been I mean, I I literally was telling these guys earlier I could sit here for an entire week and do Well, you ask
1: a question a lot of questions about me and I know a lot about me. <laughs> yeah, Well yeah,
0: hopefully you're your own best friend. <laughs> <laughs> yes the person you like to spend the most time with. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I do I, enjoy I, I know that feeling. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I've you- I've always you... tried
1: to have a good time wherever I am and to make the best of whatever situation I'm in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the point about the right time, right place is then do the right thing.
0: Well, you've lived, I mean, I was gonna say to you before, like you ask a lot of people, you know, like, what would you wish you would have done when you know with your life? Oh, I wanna be a rock star. No, no, I wanna be, I, I would have been you. <laughs> You know, well, it's, it's like being the politician's I, I, guy in the ear. Like, you don't want to be the politician. No. You want to be no, the guy just, in the ear. It's funny
1: because, uh, you know, somebody like Alice Cooper is always in Alice Cooper's dressing room. But I get to visit Tina Turner and she asked me about Madonna. And, you know, I remember being on a bus with the Bay City Rollers in Japan and showing them videotapes of the New York Dolls. Mm-hmm. You know, that I get to see all the different aspects. Do of you remember people. Howard Cosell's show in the 70s? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was the one who announced it nation cause the nation because the... The football game was the biggest show on TV, and he was the one who announced to most people that. Yeah, he well, he had this mind. dumb show. It last,
0: i don't know. It's—I think I like five minutes. But my friends oh, and the I, TV I was there.
1: Yeah, I was there with the. Basie
0: it was like rollers. Saturday <laughs> night. Yeah, the, I was there yeah. that night. Oh, not really? In the
1: crowd, I was with the rollers. Yeah.
0: But when you mentioned the baseball rollers in your book, I had totally forgotten about them. But I went because there was some baseball manager. Maybe it was Joe Torre that was there that night. That same night as. And so we went because we were teenagers. Yeah. And Charo was there. Charo might, was there. You know, I followed her up the stairs. One of them. She I, kissed that me. That was a good she moment. She came out <laughs> of the dressing room, and everybody was like, Charo, can you sign this?" And yeah. I said, "I said, Cheryl, I don't have a pen. Can you give me a kiss?" And she goes, "Sure, gucci gucci." And she gives me a kiss. <laughs> I, I don't think I have watched that. that yeah, flat, really. <laughs> but the Bay City Rollers, they came on the. They did the flatbed thing. Yeah. Which was know, unbelievable. What? They well, when they came up to bed? that show. Yeah. They. Uh, Unless I'm imagining this, didn't they do this? Didn't they copy the stones? I don't remember to get that. into it could that. Have happened, uh, but yeah, right. no, I don't I, I, I'm, I'm going to look that up plus. because for some could reason the memory There's sticks in my head. There are many
1: things I don't remember, but uh, <laughs> well, luckily you I have pictures. Thank Ike Turner I, I, for that. I can go back, yeah, possibly, uh, but I can go back and look at the pictures because I did take pictures of the whole thing. Yeah, I was very lucky to connect with the Bay City Rollers. I made more money with them than any other band I worked with. Wow, well, you um, said that in the book because they did special magazines just about the rollers. Like I would sell three Rolling Stone pictures or two Debbie Harry pictures and 47 Bass City Roller That's
0: pictures. a true or false <laughs> question you can ask people like at parties and, and make yeah. bets on and oh, make yeah. a lot of money because nobody would believe it. The
1: Rollers were the only other band besides the Beatles that had a mania. Uh, the Roller fans were called Roller Mania. Uh, other bands have like Bieberites or whatever they call them, you know, Beebs. There was a fan name for other people, you know. Um, But only only the Bay City Rollers and the Beatles had a mania. Wow. And they did. They had thousands of kids outside screaming, passing out. They would scream so much, they would hyperventilate and keel over. But they were 13. They were little. And we could pick them up and carry them out. (laughs) (laughs) them. Well, you're going to have to come this back were fun. This,
0: this was not enough time, uh, at least from my perspective. Uh, I, I could do this for hours with you. You've been okay. unbelievable. Um, well, it's my pleasure. Hey, and I love uh, coming to Ryan Nice here. to meet you, Elizabeth. And It's a
1: very cute back room. I remember reading yeah, about well, it and how successful the station is, which is... Uh, and uh, look, it works. <laughs> well, thanks again, Bob. All right. Thank you.
0: That's episode 47. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Matty Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind in the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, the legendary photographer, Bob Gruen. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood and your own backyards. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.